Section 20 of Captain Singleton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Dennis Sayers. The Life, Adventures, and Piracies of Captain Singleton by Daniel Defoe. The tide was up, as we call it, so that it did not appear very much above the water, but as they made downwards, they found it grow bigger and bigger and the tide soon after ebbing out, they found it lay dry upon the sands, and appeared to be the wreck of a considerable vessel, larger than could be expected in that country. After some time, William, taking out his glass to look at it more nearly, was surprised with hearing a musket-shot whistle by him, and immediately after that he heard the gun, and saw the smoke from the other side upon which our men immediately fired three muskets, to discover, if possible, what or who they were. Upon the noise of these guns, abundance of men came running down to the shore from among the trees, and our men could easily perceive that they were Europeans, though they knew not of what nation. However, our men hallooed to them as loud as they could, and by and by, they got a long pole and set it up and hung a white shirt upon it for a flag of truce they on the other side saw it by the help of their glasses too and quickly after our men see a boat launch off from the shore as they thought but it was from another creek it seems and immediately they came rowing over the creek to our men carrying also a white flag as a token of truce. It is not easy to describe the surprise or joy and satisfaction that appeared on both sides to see not only white men, but Englishmen, in a place so remote. But what then must it be when they came to know one another, and to find that they were not only countrymen, but comrades, and that this was the very ship that Captain Wilmot, our admiral, commanded, and whose company we had lost in the storm at Tobago, after making an agreement to rendezvous at Madagascar. They had, it seems, got intelligence of us when they came to the south part of the island, and had been a-roving as far as the Gulf of Bengal, when they met Captain Avery, with whom they joined, took several prizes, and, amongst the rest, one ship with the great mogul's daughter, and an immense treasure in money and jewels. And from thence they came about the coast of Coromandel, and afterwards that of Malabar, into the Gulf of Persia, where they also took some prize, and then designed for the south part of Madagascar, but the winds blowing hard at south-east and south-east by east, they came to the northward side of the isle, and being after that separated by a furious tempest from the northwest, they were forced into the mouth of that creek, where they lost their ship. And they told us, also, that they heard that Captain Avery himself had lost his ship, also not far off. When they had thus acquainted one another with their fortunes, the poor overjoyed men 
were in haste to go back to communicate their joy to their comrades, and, leaving some of their men with ours, the rest went back, and William was so earnest to see them that he and two more men went back with them, and there he came to their little camp where they lived. There were about a hundred and sixty men of them in all. They had got their guns on shore, and some ammunition, but a good deal of their powder was spoiled. However, they had raised a fair platform, and mounted twelve pieces of cannon upon it, which was a sufficient defense to them on that side of the sea. And just at the end of the platform they had made a launch and a little yard, and were all hard at work, building another little ship, as I may call it, to go to sea in. But they put a stop to this work, upon the news they had of our being come in. When our men went into their huts, it was surprising, indeed, to see the vast stock of wealth they had got in gold and silver and jewels, which, however, they told us was a trifle to what Captain Avery had, wherever he was gone. It was five days we had waited for our men, and no news of them, and, indeed, I gave them over for lost, but was surprised, after five days waiting, to see a ship's boat come rowing towards us along shore. What to make of it I could not tell, but was, at least, better satisfied when our men told me they heard them halloo and saw them wave their caps to us. In a little time they came quite up to us, and I saw friend William stand up in the boat and make signs to us, so they came on board. But when I saw there were but fifteen of our one-and-thirty men, I asked him what had become of their fellows. Oh, says William, they are all very well, and my dream is fully made good, and the coxswains too. This made me very impatient to know how the case stood. So he told us the whole story, which indeed surprised us all. The next day we weighed, and stood away southerly to join Captain Wilmot and ship at Mangaheli, where we found them, as I said, a little chagrined at our stay. But we pacified him afterwards with telling him the history of William's dream, and the consequence of it. In the meantime, the camp of our comrades was so near Mangaheli that our admiral and I, friend William, and some of the men, resolved to take the sloop and go and see them, and fetch them all, and their goods, bag and baggage, on board our ship, which accordingly we did, and found their camp, their fortifications, the battery of guns they had erected, their treasure, and all the men, just as William had related it. So, after some stay, we took all the men into the sloop, and brought them away with us. It was some time before we knew what was become of Captain Avery, but after about a month, by the direction of the men who had lost their ship, we sent the sloop to cruise along the shore, to find out, if possible, where they were, and in about a week's cruise our men found them, and particularly that they had lost their ship, as well as our men had lost theirs, 
and that they were every way in as bad a condition as ours. It was about ten days before the sloop returned, and Captain Avery with them, and this was the whole force that, as I remember, Captain Avery ever had with him, for now we joined all our companies together, and it stood thus. We had two ships and a sloop, in which we had three hundred and twenty men, but much too few to man them as they ought to be, the great Portuguese ship requiring of herself near four hundred to man her completely. As for our lost, but now found comrade, her complement of men was a hundred and eighty, or thereabouts, and Captain Avery had about three hundred men with him, whereof he had ten carpenters with him, most of which were taken aboard the prize they had taken, so that, in a word, all the force Avery had at Madagascar, in the year 1699 or thereabouts, amounted to our three ships, for his own was lost, as you have heard, and never had any more than about twelve hundred men in all. It was about a month after this that all our crews got together, and as Avery was unshipped, we all agreed to bring our company into the Portuguese man-of-war, and the sloop, and give Captain Avery the Spanish frigate, with all the tackles and furniture, guns and ammunition, for his crew by themselves, for which they, being full of wealth, agreed to give us forty thousand pieces of eight. It was next considered what course we should take. Captain Avery, to give him his due, proposed our building a little city here, establishing ourselves on shore, with a good fortification, and works proper to defend ourselves, and that, as we had wealth enough, and could increase it to what degree we pleased, we should content ourselves to retire here and bid defiance to the world. But I soon convinced him that this place would be no security to us if we pretended to carry on our cruising trade, for that then all the nations of Europe, and indeed of that part of the world, would be engaged to root us out. But if we resolved to live there as in retirement, and plant in the country as private men, and give over our trade of pirating, then indeed we might plant and settle ourselves where we pleased. But then I told him the best way would be to treat with the natives, and buy a tract of land of them farther up the country, seated upon some navigable river, where boats might go up and down for pleasure, but not ships to endanger us, that thus planting the high ground with cattle, such as cows and goats, of which the country also was full, to be sure we might live here as well as any men in the world. And I owned to him, I thought it was a good retreat for those that were willing to leave off and lay down, and yet did not care to venture home and be hanged, that is to say, to run the risk of it. Captain Avery, however he made no positive discovery of his intentions, seemed to me to decline my notion of going up into the country to plant. On the contrary, it was apparent he was of Captain Wilmot's opinion, 
that they might maintain themselves on shore, and, yet, carry on their cruising trade too, and upon this they resolved. But, as I afterwards understood, about fifty of their men went up the country, and settled themselves in an inland place as a colony. Whether they are there still or not, I cannot tell, or how many of them are left alive, but it is my opinion they are there still, and that they are considerably increased, for, as I hear, they have got some women among them, though not many, for it seems five Dutch women, and three or four little girls, were taken by them in a Dutch ship, which they afterwards took along to Mocha, and three of these women, marrying some of these men, went with them to live in their new plantation. But of this I speak only by hearsay. As we lay here some time, I found our people mightily divided in their notions. Some were for going this way, and some that, till at last I began to foresee they would part company, and perhaps we should not have men enough to keep together to man the great ship. So I took Captain Wilmot aside, and began to talk to him about it, but soon perceived that he inclined himself to stay at Madagascar. And having got a vast wealth for his own share, had secret designs of getting home some way or other. I argued the impossibility of it, and the hazard he would run, either of falling into the hands of thieves and murderers in the Red Sea, who would never let such a treasure as his pass their hands, or of his falling into the hands of the English, Dutch, or French, who would certainly hang him for a pirate. I gave him an account of the voyage I had made from this very place to the continent of Africa, and what a journey it was to travel on foot. In short, nothing could persuade him, but he would go into the Red Sea with the sloop, and where the children of Israel passed through the sea dry-shod, and landing there, would travel to Grand Cairo by land, which is not above eighty miles, and from thence he said he could ship himself by the way of Alexandria to any part of the world. I represented the hazard, and indeed the impossibility of his passing by Mocha and Jida without being attacked, if he offered it by force, or plundered if he went to get leave, and explained the reasons of it so much and so effectually that, though at last he would not hearken to it himself, none of his men would go with him. They told him they would go anywhere with him to serve him, but that this was running himself and them into certain destruction, without any possibility of avoiding it, or probability of answering his end. The captain took what I said to him quite wrong, and pretended to resent it, and gave me some buccaneer words upon it. But I gave him no return to it but this, that I advised him for his advantage, that if he did not understand it so, it was his fault, not mine, that I did not forbid him to go, nor had I offered to persuade any of the men not to go with him, 
though it was to their apparent destruction. However, warm heads are not easily cooled. The captain was so eager that he quitted our company, and, with most part of his crew, went over to Captain Avery, and sorted with his people, taking all the treasure with him, which, by the way, was not very fair in him, we having agreed to share all our gains, whether more or less, whether absent or present. Our men muttered a little at it, but I pacified them as well as I could, and told them it was easy for us to get as much if we minded our hits, and Captain Wilmot had set us a very good example, for by the same rule the agreement of any further sharing of profits with them was at an end. I took this occasion to put into their heads some part of my further designs, which were to range over the eastern sea, and see if we could not make ourselves as rich as Mr. Avery, who, it was true, had gotten a prodigious deal of money, though not half of what was said of it in Europe. Our men were so pleased with my forward, enterprising temper, that they assured me they would go with me, one and all, over the whole globe, wherever I would carry them, and, as for Captain Wilmot, they would have nothing more to do with him. This came to his ears, and put him into a great rage, so that he threatened, if I came on shore, he would cut my throat. I had information of it privately, but took no notice of it at all. Only I took care not to go unprovided for him, and seldom walked about, but in very good company. However, at last Captain Wilmot and I met, and talked over the matter very seriously, and I offered him the sloop to go where he pleased, or, if he was not satisfied with that, I offered to take the sloop and leave him the great ship. But he declined both, and only desired that I would leave him six carpenters, which I had in our ship more than I had need of, to help his men to finish the sloop that was begun before we came thither, by the men that lost their ship. This I consented readily to, and lent him several other hands that were useful to them, and in a little time they built a stout brigantine, able to carry fourteen guns and two hundred men. What measures they took, and how Captain Avery managed afterwards, is too long a story to meddle with here, nor is it any of my business, having my own story still upon my hands. We lay here about these several simple disputes almost five months, when, about the latter end of March, I set sail with the great ship, having in her forty-four guns and four hundred men, and the sloop carrying eighty men. We did not steer to the Malabar coast, and so to the Gulf of Persia, as was first intended, the east monsoons blowing yet too strong. But we kept more under the African coast, where we had the wind variable till we passed the line, and made the Cape Bassa, in the latitude of four degrees ten minutes. From thence the monsoons beginning to change to the north-east and north-north-east, 
we led it away, with the wind large to the Maldives, a famous ledge of islands, well known by all the sailors who have gone into those parts of the world, and leaving these islands a little to the south, we made Cape Comorin, the southernmost land of the coast of Malabar, and went round the Isle of Ceylon. Here we lay by a while to wait for purchase, and here we saw three large English East India ships going from Bengal, or from Fort St. George, homeward for England, or rather for Bombay and Surat, till the trade set in. We brought two, and, hoisting an English ancient and pendant, lay by for them, as if we intended to attack them. They could not tell what to make of us a good while, though they saw our colors, and I believe at first they thought us to be French, but as they came nearer to us, we let them soon see what we were, for we hoisted a black flag, with two cross-daggers in it, on our main topmast head, which let them see what they were to expect. We soon found the effects for this, for at first they spread their ancients, and made up to us in a line, as if they would fight us, having the wind off shore, fair enough to have brought them on board us. But when they saw what force we were of, and found we were cruisers of another kind, they stood away from us again, with all the sail they could make. If they had come up, we should have given them an unexpected welcome, but as it was, we had no mind to follow them, so we let them go, for the same reasons which I mentioned before. But though we let them pass, we did not design to let others go at so easy a price. It was but the next morning that we saw a sail standing round Cape Comorin, and steering, as we thought, the same course with us. We knew not at first what to do with her, because she had the shore on her larboard quarter, and if we offered to chase her, she might put into any port or creek and escape us. But to prevent this we sent the sloop to get in between her and the land. As soon as she saw that, she hauled in to keep the land aboard, and when the sloop stood towards her, she made right ashore, with all the canvas she could spread. The sloop, however, came up with her and engaged her, and found she was a vessel of ten guns, Portuguese built, but in the Dutch trader's hands, and manned by Dutchmen, who were bound from the Gulf of Persia to Batavia to fetch spices and other goods from thence. The sloop's men took her, and had the rummaging of her before we came up. She had in her some European goods, and a good round sum of money, and some pearl, so that though we did not go to the gulf for the pearl, the pearl came to us out of the gulf, and we had our share of it. This was a rich ship, and the goods were of very considerable value, besides the money and the pearl. We had a long consultation here, what we should do with the men, for to give them the ship, and let them pursue their voyage to Java, would be to alarm the Dutch factory there, 
who are by far the strongest in the Indies, and to make our passage that way impracticable, whereas we resolved to visit that part of the world in our way, but were not willing to pass the great bay of Bengal, where we hoped for a great deal of purchase, and therefore it behooved us not to be waylaid before we came there, because they knew we must pass by the Straits of Malacca, or those of Sunda, and either way it was very easy to prevent us. While we were consulting this in the great cabin, the men had had the same debate before the mast. It seems the majority there were for pickling up the poor Dutchmen among the herrings. In a word, they were for throwing them all into the sea. Poor William, the Quaker, was in great concern about this, and comes directly to me to talk about it. Hark thee, says William, what wilt thou do with these Dutchmen that thou hast on board? Thou wilt not let them go, I suppose, says he. Why, says I, William, would you advise me to let them go? No, says William, I cannot say it is fit for thee to let them go, that is to say, to go on with their voyage to Batavia, because it is not for thy turn that the Dutch at Batavia should have any knowledge of thy being in these seas. Well then, says I to him, I know no remedy but to throw them overboard. You know, William, says I, a Dutchman swims like a fish, and all our people here are of the same opinion as well as I. At the same time, I resolved it should not be done, but wanted to hear what William would say. He gravely replied, If all the men of the ship were of that mind, I will never believe that thou wilt be of that mind thyself. For I have heard thee protest against cruelty in all other cases. Well, William, says I, that is true, but what then shall we do with them? Why, says William, is there no way but to murder them? I am persuaded thou canst not be in earnest. No, indeed, William, says I, I am not in earnest, but they shall not go to Java, no, nor to Ceylon, that is certain. But, says William, the men have done thee no injury at all. Thou hast taken a great treasure from them. What canst thou pretend to hurt them for? Nay, William, says I, do not talk of that. I have pretense enough, if that be all. My pretense is to prevent doing me hurt, and that is as necessary a piece of the law of self-preservation as any you can name. But the main thing is, I know not what to do with them, to prevent their prating. While William and I were talking, the poor Dutchmen were openly condemned to die, as it may be called, by the whole ship's company, and so warm were the men upon it, that they grew very clamorous, and, when they heard that William was against it, some of them swore they should die, and if William opposed it, he should drown along with them. But, as I was resolved to put an end to their cruel project, so I found it was time to take upon me a little, or the bloody humour might grow too strong. So, 
I called the Dutchmen up and talked a little with them. First, I asked them if they were willing to go with us. Two of them offered it presently, but the rest, which were fourteen, declined it. Well then, said I, where would you go? They desired they should go to Ceylon. No, I told them, I could not allow them to go to any Dutch factory, and told them very plainly the reasons of it, which they could not deny to be just. I let them know also the cruel, bloody measures of our men, but that I had resolved to save them if possible, and therefore I told them I would set them on shore at some English factory in the Bay of Bengal, or put them on board any English ship I met, after I was past the Straits of Sunda, or of Malacca, but not before. For, as to my coming back again, I told them I would run the venture of their Dutch power from Batavia, but I would not have the news come there before me, because it would make all their merchant ships lay up, and keep out of our way. It came next into our consideration what we should do with their ship, but that was not long resolving, for there were but two ways, either to set her on fire, or to run her on shore, and we chose the last. So we set her foresail with the tack at the cat-head, and lashed her helm a little to starboard, to answer her head-sail, and so set her a-going, with neither cat or dog in her, and it was not above two hours before we saw her run right ashore upon the coast, a little beyond the Cape Comorin, and away we went round about Ceylon for the coast of Coromandel. End of section 20 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox